the Gospels is that Jesus always applies pressure. When Jesus is interacting with people, when Jesus shows up, he applies pressure to the audience, to his audience, wherever he goes. Everything he does is calculated and it's meant to bring people to a point of, of decision. It's meant to, to bring people to the point where they begin to, to ask the question, am I going to follow him or not? Am I going to trust him or not? Will I believe who he, who he says he is or not? In other words, the way Jesus moves, the way Jesus um, carries himself, the way he walks and the way he's presented to us in the gospel, um, you cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. Jesus speaks and acts in ways that imposes these questions or, or raise questions about his identity and who he is. And so when we find in the gospel scenes and events where uh, these, these questions play out in real time and in real interactions and in real situations. And, and, and no one in the gospels is, ex, is exempt from being confronted with the question of, of who Jesus is and how would they respond to him and who he says he is and what he's done. Even, even, even John the Baptist, as great as he is, and Jesus um, says no man born of a woman, no man born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. Even John the Baptist had to wrestle with who Jesus uh, was and wondered whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And so in Luke's gospel, uh, written, Luke's gospel was written directly to address the nature and identity of Jesus along with the other gospels. And for 2,000 plus years, readers and hearers of this gospel have been confronted with the same question Jesus asked Peter long ago in Luke chapter 9. Who do you say that I am? And what will you do with that information? This morning, uh, I invite us to open our Bibles to the gospel of Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. It's also printed in your, um, your bulletin as we wrestle with this question, as we are confronted with this question. Who do you say that I am? How will you respond to who I am? Who am I to you? What are you going to, to do with me? We're in a series um, chronicling the life of, of, of Jesus um, from the manger to the tomb and how Jesus uh, is presented to us in the gospel of Luke as the, the source and the path uh, of great joy. True joy is found in him, found in following him and what he uh, has come to give to those who trust him. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36, we read a familiar story, but a powerful scene. Um, Starting in verse 36, it says, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He held a feast. So Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life, who was known for being sinful, in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped with her, wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed a Two, two, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. 
One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus, in other words, is telling Simon that he was inhospitable towards him. Therefore, verse 47, therefore, I will tell you her many sins have been forgiven because or it's demonstrated because she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When we come to this section of Luke's gospel, Jesus has built up quite a reputation um, during his travels around Galilee and Judea. And up until this point, Luke has recorded for us uh, that Jesus is the one who who has been teaching with authority to large crowds the, the word of God. He's been he's been seen casting out demons. He's been seen healing the sick, and he, he's he, he's even been seen interrupting a funeral procession and raising a widow's dead son. And so, so to some, Jesus had had become a great teacher. He'd be he's a he's a great healer. He's a powerful exorcist, miracle worker, prophet. But to others. He had already gained a, a, a different reputation of being a disruptor, a disruptor of the religious status quo. And in two places, chapter nine, or chapter five, verse 25, and chapter seven, verse 34, a few verses before the passage we read today, uh, in two places, he had earned the reputation of keeping company with and being accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So in chapter 7, this, this is brought to the forefront, Jesus' reputation that has preceded him as he's invited to this Pharisee's house. And we find two different, very different characters responding to the presence of Jesus. And this leads to our central truth this morning, our central, first central truth this morning, which is this. How we view Jesus determines how we respond to Jesus. How we view Jesus determines how we respond to Jesus. Again, if you go back and read uh, Luke's chapters 1 through 7 through 35, you'll find, again, Jesus is, as seen, is known as a teacher, a healer, an exorcist, a miracle worker, but he's also one who has come to, who's ruffled the feathers of the religious elite. He's a disruptor of the religious uh, status quo. People have questioned who who is this man that that thinks he has the authority to 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 tell a man who's who's coming to seek healing to tell him your sins are forgiven, raise up and and take up your mat. And well, who does this man think he is? But I believe in this passage is a clear demonstration or, or or clear it highlights something very clear that how we view Jesus determines how we respond to Jesus. 
and this plays out in how the Pharisee interacts to Jesus as he's invited him to his house. And, and we see a, a contrast to this, this, this woman who's known to be a sinner in the town, how she responds to the presence of Jesus. <clears throat> Often in the gospel, uh, Jesus is met with large amounts of suspicion or skepticism and even opposition by society's religious elites. And in this passage, uh, one of those who belongs to the Pharisees invites Jesus to a feast, to a dinner. And the Pharisees are, 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 are known for their piety. They're, they're known for their devotion to, to holiness. They're, they're known for their morality and, and their separateness from all things unclean. And so in a way, the, the, the very fact that this Pharisee invites Jesus, it, 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 he honors Jesus in, in a way, uh, because, you know, it, it, for the Pharisee to invite Jesus to his home, he, he must think, okay, he's not super unclean, lest I wouldn't have anything to do with him. Um, but however, the honor turns sideways when this woman comes in, and who's known for her sinful ways, enters the fold and interacts with Jesus. And, and as we read, as she puts on this extravagant display of humility and devotion towards Jesus's feet, Simon, the, the Pharisee, internally questions Jesus's status as a, as a prophet. Luke records that, that Simon said to himself, this man must not be a prophet because do he know who this woman is? He, because if he did, he wouldn't be letting her cry on his feet and kiss his feet and put oil and uh, ointment on his feet. He wouldn't want to be associated with this woman, this nameless woman, let alone let her touch him. Simon is then put off by Jesus's acceptance and an and implicit encouragement of the woman's presence and actions toward him during this dinner. It, 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 seemed that, it seems to Simon that Jesus has fully embraced the, the, his reputation of being a friend of sinners, and that rubs Simon the wrong way. It's not a good thing. And this is because Simon has either rejected or misunderstood Jesus's assignment, and Jesus uses this encounter with this woman and Simon as a teaching moment. So he uses a parable to illustrate a number of truths about himself and the response offered by Simon the Pharisee and this woman. First, and as Jesus teaches what he intends to communicate with this parable, he revolutionizes the Pharisee's understanding of his prophetic ministry. Jesus's ministry moves him towards sinners rather than away from sinners. Jesus's ministry uh, compels him to go to the needy, to the lost, the outcast, the marginalized, as opposed to avoiding them. In other words, Jesus isn't turned off by sinners, for it is precisely for sinners that Jesus came. The Apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Timothy 1, uh, 1, uh, 1, verse 15. He says, this is a very trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And if that's the case, if, if Jesus came to save sinners, then to avoid sinners would be going against what he came to do. When previously asked why he hung out with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus responded by saying this in Luke 5, 31 to 32. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Many understood his hanging out with sinners, his affection for sinners, his gravitation towards sinners and outcasts and the, the nobodies of society. They, 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 they understood this to be participation in or acceptance of sin. But nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus participate in or accept sin, yet he moves towards sinners. When Jesus hung out with sinners, he did so not to, as, as one church father put, to share or participate in their faults, but to impart somewhat of his own righteousness. In other words, Jesus sought to elevate people to holiness, not to subject himself to sin. Jesus then is a friend of sinners so that sinners may experience the power of his redeeming grace. And this is exactly what happened with this woman. Her sin, her widely known sin, the sin that, that gave this nameless woman the reputation of all we know about her was that she was a sinful woman. This sin, her sin came into contact with the one who has the power, authority, and willingness to forgive sin. And she responded accordingly. Her great sin met up with his great forgiveness. And this, her, her experience of this great forgiveness of her great sin motivated her to respond or to express or demonstrate this great display of worship and affection. What some would, would, would probably have thought in that party um, that what she was doing was something erotic or, or provocative. One, in that culture, women wouldn't, weren't supposed to let down their hair in, in public. Uh, that, that was only the, 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 the street walkers, the prostitutes did that. And so for this woman to come and Jesus said, and, and worship at his feet and kiss his feet and, and let down her hair and wipe her hair, wipe his feet with her hair and, and put ointment. Some would think that she's trying to seduce Jesus, but those are those who are blinded spiritually. What she was displaying was an act of pure and unadulterated worship. When she came to the feet of Jesus to cry, she came to worship at the one who had set her free from sin. And so to this Pharisee, Jesus was a false prophet. But to the woman, he was everything and worthy of her devotion, worthy of all that she expressed. To her, he was her bringer of forgiveness, her, her savior, the, the lover of her soul, the, the one who did not cast her aside, the, 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 the one who did not turn his back on her, turn his nose down at, him, or at her, the, the one who brought her peace, and the one who restored her both privately and in this scene publicly. When Jesus tells her, your faith has saved you, he's not saying that for her benefit. She already knew she was forgiven. She already knew she had experienced the power of salvation because she was there worshiping him. It wasn't for her that he said that. It was for the people around her. You know this woman to be a sinful woman, but I call her redeemed. I call her saved. I, I, I call her forgiven. I, I called her reconciled to God. He was the one who was not repelled by the enormity of her sin, but was compelled all the more to release her from the bondage of sin, just as his name proclaims. You know, we tend to forget this as we read along in the gospel, why Jesus was named Jesus. When the angel visited Joseph and Mary and, and said, well, I want you to call this child Jesus. Why? 
because he will save his people from their sin. The name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves. And so Jesus is only living up to his name. When you think about Jesus, family, what, what comes to mind? When you talk about Jesus to others, when you speak to others about Jesus, what is it that you proclaim? What is it about him that you proclaim to others? I ask that question because I fear uh, that the Jesus many Christians preach is known for more. He's known more by what he's against than what he's for. I fear that we don't preach Jesus as the friend of sinners, but the one who, came, who has come to condemn sinners. The one who hates sinners. The one who's angry at sinners. The one who is repelled by sinners. Anyone that doesn't agree with, with, what, we, uh, with what we believe or what we ascribe to must not know the Jesus we know and find themselves in opposition to Jesus. That's the Jesus we preach. He's known more for what he's against than what he's for. We, when we use Jesus this way, we use him as a weapon against sinners rather than as the savior of sinners. And when we do this, we lose the plot and we become like Simon the, the Pharisee and misrepresent what Jesus is about. And I wonder, though, if the Jesus we project, clearly I'm not talking about anybody in this room, but I wonder if the Jesus we project reveals something deeper about what we believe to be true about him. There's a temptation um, for Christians to fall into the trap of, of believing that because we still struggle with sin, that Jesus is angry at us. And because we feel that Jesus is angry at us because we still wrestle and struggle with sin, the Jesus we project is an angry Jesus who is angry at sinners, who is in opposition to uh, sinners, who's repelled by sinners. The Jesus we believe is repelled by us because of our ever-present uh, struggle with sin. We feel that we are unworthy of, of him. And so when we preach about Jesus, we highlight to how, how much other people are unworthy of him. Or could it be that we've been saved so long that we forget what it felt like to be overwhelmed by the redeeming grace and forgiveness of Jesus? Could it be that our lives are so far removed of the identity of being known as a sinner that we've forgotten what it's like to have Jesus released from the bondage of sin. Secondly, Jesus teaches that our response to him is a reflection of how we see ourselves in light of his ministry. Are, are we people who know how great a mercy we've received and in turn express great humility and devotion? Or, or, or do we downplay the magnitude of what Jesus has given us by way of forgiveness and redemption? Because maybe our lives weren't as bad as this woman's. 
or, or bad as, as others uh, that we know. So Jesus teaches us that our response to him is a reflection of how we see ourselves in light of his ministry. In this story, we see one who is full of pride and arrogance and inhospitality. And then we see one who is humble, grateful, a worshiper, a true worshiper, loving God in, in light of how much he had been loved by God. My desire for this church is that, one, we would be a place where sinners can come to know the friend of sinners. That City Lights will be the house that welcomes sinners. Not because we think sin is good, not because we celebrate sin, but because Jesus is a friend of sinners. And when sinners come and meet Jesus, something happens in that exchange. I want people to know that no matter how messed up their lives may be, they are not too far gone to be forgiven. And it's not too late for them to receive salvation. And two, my desire is that we would be a place where our love, our devotion and obedience to Jesus, our affection for Jesus is a reflection of how great a salvation, redemption, and forgiveness we have received. We freely give, we freely serve because what we freely receive. We, we serve wholeheartedly, we sing passionately, we love unconditionally, all because of how good and how great Jesus has been to us and for us. I want our church to be a, a, a place that it is palpable, that when people come and experience our circles, experience this, this, this time together, experience fellowshipping with us, they know that these people have been impacted by the love and forgiveness of Jesus. So at least to our central truth number two, as we wrap this up, I've already alluded to it, but here let's put it on paper now. How we respond to Jesus demonstrates how we view ourselves. So one, how we view Jesus determines how we respond to him. But how we respond to him demonstrates how we view ourselves. Again, we have these two characters that are contrasted in this, in this story Luke's, Luke tells. One, this Pharisee, uh, as one who, by virtue of his status as a Pharisee, his piety, his, his morality, he, he, he thinks he's in need of little forgiveness. If, if, if he's in need of forgiveness at, at all, he, he doesn't see Jesus as forgiven of sins. In fact, he, he questions, who, who do you think you are to forgive sin? And then we have this woman, th this woman who comes in, who's, who's, who's unfazed, who, 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 who is single-minded in her devotion, not, not caring about whatever else is going on around her, not caring about what people are whispering and giggling about. All she wants to do is have this moment with Jesus. Maybe she doesn't think he's going to hang around for, for, for a while as Jesus is constantly on the move in the gospels and, and she hears that he's, he's going to be at this house. And so this is her one opportunity to, to show him her gratitude, to, to show him her appreciation for what he's done for her. And I'm so glad that Jesus does not turn this woman Away. I'm so glad that Jesus accepts and embraces the badge that he is a friend to sinners because 
personally, if he were not a friend of sinners, I'd be in grave danger and without hope of the, in this world. And I never want to get to a place where I'm not moved by the fact that my debt has fully been paid. And I never want to get to the place where I look down on others for their expression of, of gratitude towards Jesus. When I was studying this passage, two people from this, from this church who are no longer with us constantly kept coming up to mind. They, they reminded me uh, of this woman and their unashamedness to, to praise God and their unashamedness to express their worship and devotion to God. And that's Dorothy Simmons and Angela Jackson. If you remember them, they were never afraid to stand up. They were never afraid to testify to the goodness of Jesus. They were boisterous with their praise. They were unashamed with their praise. Yes, rough around the edges. Oh, but they knew they were forgiven. They knew that they had been redeemed. They, they knew that Jesus had impacted and transformed this, their lives, and they were unafraid to show it. I never want to get to a place where I'm not moved by the cross, that I'm not moved by the reality that my debt has fully been paid. I want to always be reminded that my sin was great, but his grace is greater. My salvation is, is secure. And now, like Dorothy and Angela and this woman in this passage, shame no longer is my portion. But my faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ has brought about my salvation. I imagine that 2,000 years ago at this dinner, when this woman was defying all social norms, she washed his feet with her, with her tears and dried them with her hair. When she anointed his feet with her expensive oil, those tears were not tears of sadness, but tears of joy because of the change that took place in her life, all because she met a man named Jesus who did for her what others were didn't want to do. When others avoided her, he moves toward her, and he did for her what nobody else could do, and that was to release her from the bondage and shame of her sin. Exactly 60 years ago, Bill Gaither, you know, probably known from the Gaither vote, uh, gospel band, he wrote a song that has become the testimony of millions around the world. It's, it's, it's my testimony, and I, I'd imagine it's the, the, the if, if they had these songs back then, it would be the testimony of this woman whom before Jesus, all she was known was, was for her sinfulness. And, and maybe it's your testimony as well, if, you, if you'd be willing to be honest with yourself. Bill wrote 60 years ago these words, shackled by a heavy burden, beneath a load of guilt and shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I'm no longer the same. Since I met this blessed Savior, since he cleansed and made me whole, I will never cease to praise him. I'll shout it while eternity rolls. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. I can't explain it. I, 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 I don't know the science behind it. I, I, I couldn't, I, I can't fathom how it could happen, why it could happen, but something happened. And now I know that he touched me. And he made 
me whole. Saints, I'm so glad that Jesus touched me one day that the friend of sinners came and touched this sinner. He, he, he lifted me from the muck and miry clay and he put my feet on a rock to stay. And I'm glad about it this morning. People wonder, ask, people often ask me, why do you preach the way you do? Why you got to holler? Part of it is cultural. My daddy's a hollerer. If you ever heard my daddy preach, one day we're going to have to get you out of retirement and come up here. He won't need a mic, trust me. Uh, so part of it is cultural. But a large part of it is because I know what Jesus has done for me. I reflect and I have these conversations with my buddies from high school and we, we take these walks down memory lane and we, we recount some of the stuff that we used to get into and some of the stuff that we used. Man, I praise God for our high schoolers. Man, these, these guys are my heroes because I wasn't that in, in, in high school. And I remember all the things that I used to get into, all the things that I chased, all the things that I thought were important to me. And Jesus saved me out of that stuff. This stuff that I should have been, I should be in jail to this day. And I'm not saying that as hyperbole. No, I'm for real. But Jesus delivered me. He saved me from myself. He saved me out of situations that I wouldn't have been able to get out of. He touched me. I preach the way I do because he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened and now I know he touched me and he made me whole. In conclusion, if this is true for you as it is for me, as it is, as it was for that woman, I pray that we would respond with wholehearted praise. We would respond with wholehearted devotion. And, and, I, and I know everybody's temperament is not to stand up and amen, pastor, and hallelujah, pastor. That's not everybody's temperament. And I'm not trying to make you guys Dorothy and Angela clones. I, but I do want there to be this tangible, palpable, people don't have to guess that we know Jesus and have been impacted by his life. And in doing so, we make room for others. We join others in worshiping at the feet of Jesus, unafraid of public opinion. Who cares what anybody else might say? Unafazed by societal norms, loving Jesus much because we've been given, forgiven of so much. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for being a friend of sinners, for being enough for us, not being turned off by our foolishness and our wickedness, but being all the more willing to save us and extend your hand to bring us into re in relationship with him, to deliver us, to reconcile us to the Father. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you don't turn your back on sinners and that your promise of salvation is secure. That when we believe by faith, we are secure. 
And there's not a thing anybody can do or say that can take it away from us. So, Jesus, we unabashedly and unfazed by whoever and whatever, we say thank you. We praise you. Let this be a house of true worshipers. Not boasting in our piety, not boasting in our holiness, not boasting in our morality, but boasting in nothing but the cross. It's at the cross, at the cross where we first saw the light and the burdens of our heart rolled away. It was there by faith we received our sight and now we're happy all the days. God, thank you so much that these tears we cry are not tears of shame, but tears of joy, tears of gratitude, tears of appreciation. God, help us to be agents. Help us to preach Jesus, the friend of sinners, so that this neighborhood would know they too can be forgiven by the power of your blood, by the power of your love. We thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.